but when I talk with the, the folks on the tech side of things, they'll often be very optimistic about mind uploads because they want to continue living and they think death is bad and they have their own eschatology in a tech space. It's uh-huh. fascinating, actually. But then when pressed, they do go back to like Derek Parfit in structuralist view or patternist view of mind. And you go, well, wait, that's not actually you. And they go, oh, yeah, no, it's not actually me. And say, but but your whole impetus here was that you wanted to continue living. And then when I press you on it, you're not actually living. And actually, yeah. you're not living now. It's just the pattern. And you are a strange loop. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's really fascinating yeah. and fun to, to have it's, this it's kind of yeah. a bait and switch, I think. When, when they're pitching the idea, they say it's really you. But when they're justifying the technology, they say, nah, it's not really you. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest questions in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Ralph Weir, and we're going to be talking about his fantastic new book, The Mind-Body Problem and Metaphysics, an Argument from Consciousness to Mental Substance. If you guys know anything about this show, you know this is right in my uh, curiosity wheelhouse. I love consciousness and I love substance dualism. Sometimes I get lured into science of consciousness type stuff. This is where it's at. This is what I love so much. So this is the philosophy of consciousness and metaphysics and whether or not you are a mental substance or um, a holistic unity, a psychosomatic unity, as my theologian friends insist on saying. Though they're not clear on whether or not that is uh, entails substance dualism. So we're going to get into all sorts of good stuff here today. Primarily, why, uh, why is property dualism, the view that there are properties, but uh, no immaterial, immaterial properties, but no immaterial substances, why is that so preferable to substance dualism? And why uh, Dr. Ralph Weir thinks if you go in for property dualism, then you're on the hook for substance dualism. So we're going to get into it. I'm really excited. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon or YouTube members. If you guys like the show, if you want to continue to see me bring on world's experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life, then please consider supporting the podcast. You can find that link to Patreon in the description, wherever you're getting this podcast at. Or if you prefer YouTube members, you can find the join button if you're watching here on YouTube. That is huge. If you're listening on Spotify, you can also uh, get these episodes ad-free now. So check that out. Be Subscribe, whatever. Everything has different things. You follow and you subscribe and whatever. On Spotify, you subscribe for four ninety nine a month and you get ad-free listening. So check that out. All right. That's a lot of commodification. So let's just jump into some deep philosophy of mind. Ralph, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a great honor. This book is fantastic. I'm really excited. Um, in in the book, you I think you coined this term, uh, psychophobic. We live in a psychophobic age. People who are afraid of the the suke, the the psyche, the the soul, or the immaterial mind. So, with that in mind, with that in mind, um, how did you get into studying substance dualis, substance dualism in such a uh, psychophobic age? Uh, thanks. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, uh, as a teenager, I guess I, I had a sort of fairly standard materialist kind of new atheist leaning view of reality. I went to study philosophy as an undergrad, finding you know, big questions generally very interesting. And I had this experience of, uh, excuse me, 
studying philosophy of mind as an undergraduate. And I, the whole time I felt like I was being kind of almost gaslighted, like all of the main views, as far as I could tell, were either some kind of eliminative or reductive materialism or some kind of Wittgensteinian quietism about mm. the fact that in addition to our physical bodies, we have this, you know, resplendent phenomenology going on in our minds all the time. And I couldn't quite believe anyone, you know, not only took these views very seriously, but didn't even give any attention to the alternative views that had dominated, so far as I could tell, for most of history, according to which there's some very fundamental extra thing present, the soul, the mind, or whatever it is. And I, I actually found that very off-putting. I, I was kind of a bit fed up with philosophy, but uh, I persevered to graduate level and I went to some lectures by um, Stephen Priest and Roger Scruton mm. over at Oxford, in which both in different ways took very seriously the traditional idea of a, of a, a soul. Uh, Scruton's lecture was called something like Neuroscience and the Soul. I think he wanted to call it neuro-nonsense in the soul, but they wouldn't let him. They thought it was too offensive to science. Steve lectures were called um, uh, Philosophical Questions, Theological Answers. That made me realize, oh, well, maybe you're allowed to take this stuff seriously. And um, from then on, I, I decided, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and crack this problem or try and, try and give a uh, substance dualism or the idea of a, the soul uh, a fair intellectual hearing. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, that's fantastic. I that sounds like Scruton. I I really love Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, and uh, sometimes I get slack from that from American uh, graduate students who are like Roger Scruton, not a serious. And it's like, man, if you read some of this, he's a pretty serious thinker. Um, I I'd love to ask you about that later, but uh, he's got this like cognitive dualism that I can't really understand. That I think uh -huh. might be might be property dualism, but we could we can go into that later. I uh, I wanted to ask, would you do your or your I don't know. It's probably not a dissertation over there. It's probably a thesis. But what what'd you do that in? And then uh, can you fill us in? Where'd you go from there? What, what are your, where are you doing your work at right now? So I did my, uh, uh, when I when I met Stephen Priest and Roger Scruton, that was as a graduate master's student. And I, I wrote a, a BPhil thesis at Oxford on the, um, the interaction problem in particular. Then I, I did my PhD at Cambridge with Tim Crane. And that was essentially the foundation for the, uh, for the book, the mind body problem and metaphysics. I think the PhD is called metaphysics and the mind body problem. I could never remember which way around. I, I, I intended those. To go. Uh, the PhD, it, it's like, it, it, almost the same text, except it has a bunch of, uh, ultra technical chapters, setting things up at the start, which, uh, 
Uh, Dean Zimmerman advised me to just cut out and get, get to the more interesting stuff. Hmm. Um, with her. And then whilst I was writing that, um, I started working at the University of Lincoln, which is a very, very young university in the uh, East Midlands in England. Uh, it's kind of maybe 20 years old and very excitingly, they decided to start a new philosophy, uh, faculty there. And I was lucky enough to be one of two or three people right in at the beginning. Um, and now I'm, now I'm, uh, a permanent member of faculty there. Although at the moment on research leave for a year, currently a visiting researcher at the, uh, the university of Warsaw. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know they were allowed to have new universities. Everything there is like hundreds and hundreds of years old. That's so cool. Um, so, so, so Tim Crane was, was Dean Zimmerman on your, uh, on your committee as well? Uh, Dean Zimmerman was on my, uh, examination. He, he was my external examiner. Awesome. Two, uh, two of my favorite Parker Pensy's guests. If, if, uh, you guys are hearing that and want to go check those out, maybe I'll drop some links in the description to them as well. Um, this is, that's so cool. This is so fascinating. You. You piqued my interest by talking about non-material things. Usually we only talk about like the mind in a lot of these conversations, but you brought up Leib Leibnizian monads, Aristotelian intellects, and uh, and Cartesian souls or minds, Cartesian minds, I believe. Um, do you do you think do you think uh, Leibnizian monads like would you count that as being a form of substance dualism and, and likewise with Aristotelian intellects, do, do those count? Yeah. It's a great question. So starting with Leibnizian monads, I think Leibniz's idea of monad is roughly the idea of an immaterial mental substance. He has some pretty idiosyncratic things to say about what it means for something to be a substance and there are right. some complications to get into that. I wouldn't call Leibniz a substance dualist because, uh, on his official view, as I understand it, he thinks there are only monads and therefore, uh, he's really an idealist. I, I actually think Leibniz is fairly straightforwardly an earlier Russellian monist. Really, we should say Russell's a Leibnizian monist. <laughs> That's uh, right. He'd read Leibniz. He, he knew about this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but the, uh, the book and my own interest are principally uh, geared towards reviving the idea of an immaterial substance or, or soul. And so idealism or substance dualism are both compatible with that. As for the case of Aristotle, it, it's of course highly complex and uh, hotly contested. My own opinion is it's completely clear, or as clear as one could ask, as clear as Aristotle ever is, that uh, he thinks that the intellect is an immaterial substance, at least in the sense that it's definitely immaterial and it can survive without a physical body. So he, he clearly makes room for that in De Anima and he seems to talk about it explicitly in the metaphysic. Uh, and most ancient interpreters of Aristotle just took it for granted that that was his view. It's importantly distinct in its details from Plato's view, but nonetheless continuous with it. And right. that's definitely true of later Aristotelians, Aquinas and so on. A lot of Aristotelians uh, take issue with that interpretation. I think that's because they're influenced by contemporary psuchophobia. They, they, they don't like the idea that this guy they admire thinks there's an immaterial, substantial mind or soul or intellect. My opinion is that actually Aristotle is, is like most 
influential historical thinkers uh, on my side on this issue. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we could talk. I want to keep dropping pins because I want to introduce the audience to the main themes, but I'd love to talk about like personhood and whether that follows the Uh Aristotelian intellect or Mm -hmm. not. But but first and foremost, I mean, the book is called The Mind-Body Problem in Metaphysics. Can you can you broach that for us? What what is the mind body problem in in your mind? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the way I usually introduce it, and the way I introduce it in the book, is that uh, as a human being, you you have a bunch of physical properties like any physical object, like a rock. You have shape and size and weight and so on. You also have some more complex properties involving moving parts like respiration, digestion a bit like a more complex physical object, like a clock or even a computer. But then in addition to those properties, you also have these uh, mental properties. So you have thoughts, feelings, experiences, desires, beliefs, and most uh, startlingly of all, as Thomas Nagel points out in his great essay, What It's Like to Be a Bat, there's something it's like to be you from the inside, right? Uh, You have this interior, this first-person perspective on the world with an, sort of uh, an internal phenomenology filled with shapes and colors and flashing lights and all the rest of it. And the mind-body problem, as I understand it, is the problem of explaining, well, what's going on here? Why is it that in some respects, you're just like any other physical thing, but in other respects, you are fundamentally and radically different, or you seem to be fundamentally and radically different. And uh, I see the the idea of soul body journalism as kind of for most of history and most times and places in most cultures around the globe as the um, leading response to this problem. Mm. Yeah. So um, the way I'm, I'm thinking of it after reading your book and just after studying philosophy of mind and stuff, it, to me, it's like there's a there's a, a large problem, the mind body problem. And then that will be raised for different philosophies of mind based on their own distinctives. So like the, maybe, maybe for the substance dualist, people always will say, well, what about interaction? You know, the pineal gland. And then for the physicalist, they say, well, it's the hard problem or the hardest Mm -hmm. problem or the meta hard problem. Um, Do do you think that the mind, does does that make sense? Does that sound right? Or is, is the hard problem different than the mind body problem in important ways? I mean, obviously there are, there are no rules written in the sky about how we use this terminology. Um, when when people are assuming the answer we're trying to defend is physicalism, then the mind-body problem is the problem is the hard problem of consciousness. That's the part, the aspect of it that becomes difficult. If we're assuming we're trying to defend dualism, then the hard part is the interaction problem, or putatively, that's the hard part. But I think people sometimes use the term in a narrower sense. In the book, I, I mean the broad problem of just explaining what's going on. Uh, why is it that human beings have these? Uh, radically different kinds of properties yeah okay so so obviously you think this is important you spent so much time working on it with some of the world's leading scholars and you become one yourself um i love this problem i love philosophy of mind and i'm tempted to say like this is the core problem of philosophy um mm-hmm. where do you think this fits in in importance to the whole of philosophy i guess yeah uh my opinion is is that it is absolutely central. I think a lot of the leading historical philosophers, both in the Western tradition and in non-Western traditions, have recognized that if you look at Plato or if you look at the uh, classical texts of Hindu philosophy or Jain philosophy, you you find really central is the problem of the self. 
Uh, and I think there are two respects in which it's particularly important today. One of these is that, uh, my opinion is roughly speaking, something like this, for most of the history of philosophy, you have this fairly consistent view of human nature as involving these two different uh, aspects, material and immaterial, and also in some sense, worldly and uh, spiritual. And although you always had a kind of um, contrary view put forward by the Epicureans in the West or the Chabatka school in India, according to which actually it's all just material, that was always a minority position. But I, I, I think that for the first time in the whole history of the world, we live in, a, in the modern West, an Epicurean age where people endorse this materialist view about human nature, which also has all sorts of com consequences for our understanding of our place in the wider cosmos and the wider cosmos itself. So I, I think it's, in, it's particularly important in our day for that reason. Uh, there's been a historical shift in the dominant position. And then secondly, I think this, that shift is bound up with the second reason for thinking the mind-body problem is especially important today, which is uh, what we should make philosophically of the description of the world given to us by natural science. Natural science, completely brilliant, fascinating accomplishment of humanity, but one which uh, gives us a vision of the cosmos many people want to treat as exhaustive in a sense that entails there can be no immaterial soul, there can be no absolute moral values, and, and so on for all sorts of other stuff that uh, many people have historically and, and even today think uh, are important. So I think it's pretty central. I, I will, one, one final thing I'd say on that is my own suspicion is that the answer you give to the mind-body problem is going to make a big difference to your view of everything else. Yeah. Uh, if you're a materialist about uh, that, it, you're, you're likely to be, broadly speaking, Epicurean about the rest of the cosmos. You'll think it's basically particles bouncing around in the void. Uh, moral values are a matter of preference and so on. If you think there's uh, some fundamental self or soul or whatever, it's, it's going to radically change how you reason about everything else. Yeah, I think that I think that's so true. And, and maybe it's an empirical question. I'm sure it probably is. But even when it comes to the rest of your philosophy and, and whether or not you go in for like a naturalized epistemology or, you know, certain things, I, I've just seen a, a correlation, I guess, between being a if you if you hold to some form of dualism, especially uh -huh. substance dualism and, and the rest of your philosophy. And a lot of times I can guess what what you believe in other fields based on what you believe about the mind which is which is fun not always people like to mix and match for sure that's cool um i've noticed yeah. that in in in, in theological circles there's this huge trend away from uh descartes and uh you know we don't we're not brains on sticks we're psychosomatic unities and being a substance dualist, dualist over there was kind of passe and then getting over into the philosophy world still kind of passe but at least they'll they'll take you a little bit more serious because of chalmers or someone and then moving into like the cognitive science world, a lot of people are just mm. like really intrigued by it. They, they think everything's computation anyways, but they're like, oh, you actually believe that stuff? Oh, you, and I'm a Christian as well. So they're like, oh, you, you believe in theology? Tell me about that. So it's so funny where the audience has moved to uh, wanting to hear about this stuff. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think it's um, a, a nice thing about defending the idea of the soul is that it's, it's a really ecumenical position to take because everyone's going to hate you, whether they're, whether they're like Christian theologians or whether they're a naturalistic, uh, natural scientists, or, or they're clearly proponents of multiple otherwise highly divergent schools in philosophy, Wittgensteinianism, deconstruction, Quinean naturalism, and so on. It, it's something that... Uh, all these intellectual trends are united in um, resisting. I think it's, it's an interesting feature of our age. Um, I suspect it, it, it revealed something very deep about the time we live in. I'm not quite sure what. Yeah, totally. Well, so I, I, I wanted to bring that up just to mention that uh, chapters one and two, one is why does everyone hate the soul? Two is the decline of substance dualism and the substance property distinction. Those, it's, a, it's a really helpful like historical consideration while also, you know, putting your finger on really important points as a analytic philosopher, I'd say. So I, I really commend those. I really like those. I didn't want to spend a whole bunch of time on those because um, I think we could do like two episodes on each one of those. So I just commend the book that you guys need to grab this book and you need to read one and two to see like the why of how we got here or or potentially why we got here. But I I, I took it that the the key premise of the book is that, you know, if you posit non-physical properties, then you should be prepared to posit uh, metaphysical, oh, non-physical substances as well. Okay, so if you go in for non-physical properties, you may be on the hook or you should at least be uh, be prepared to be on the hook for a non-physical substance. And, and so with that in mind, I thought it would be helpful to get some definitions of like property, substance, property dualism, and substance dualism. I know that's like yeah. a huge, that's like, chapters in this book but if we can just give a characterization maybe and it's a great thing to um to talk about i mean i would just just like what i'd really like is people to read chapter one of this book i think if they read chapter one then then they'll see the sort of the big picture i'm coming from they might not think i'm so crazy or at least yeah. <laughs> certainly yeah. they'll see why um hey uh the reason i called it the mind body problem and metaphysics is because i have this sense that the discuss the like really serious discussion in analytical philosophy about these positions has been held back by the fact that the people doing philosophy of mind working on the mind body problem tend not to be doing serious precise metaphysics where they when trying to make it really clear well what do we mean by a property what do we mean by a substance and if you don't do that you're not going to be able to give a precise reason for wanting to only posit non-physical properties not non-physical substances. Now, I, I think that's been convenient, um, arguably, for people like Kim or Jackson and so on, because they, they want to sell their version of dualism as essentially naturalistic. It's not bringing back Descartes or Plato or anything like that. And so it's useful for them to say, no, it's, it's only property dualism and not to have to give a clear explanation of what exactly that involves. Mm -hmm. So uh, early-ish in the book, I... I make an effort at distinguishing, well, what exactly do we mean by these terms? And it gets a little complex because 
the nature of properties is bound up with the problem of the universals. There are actually like five standard views of properties. But I think we can, we can skip over that and say the really crucial thing that traditional proponents of dualism assert and that contemporary, even contemporary journalists like Chalmers, uh, Kim, Jackson, at least typically want to deny, I think Chalmers is actually a bit more liberal on this, it is that uh, there is an immaterial something involved in our human nature that accounts for our mental properties, which could exist separately from the body. And uh, there does exist this traditional conception of substance where the word substance is not like what we mean by substance in ordinary colloquial English, but English where we just mean stuff. The word substance mean, roughly speaking, something that could exist separately or that could exist by itself. That some people think this was Aristotle's definition of substance way back in the categories. He's a little ambiguous, but certainly by the time of Descartes, I think it's perfectly clear that that's what a substance means. So on the you terminology I use in the book, a substance is just something that could exist separately from other things. And a property is just anything that couldn't. So if you take, for example, the, the, the shape of my wine glass here, the wine glass can exist without the, the, the wine bottle. There's a bottle too. Uh, but the shape of the wine glass can't exist without the rest of the wine glass. We can't take the shape and put it over here and keep mm -hmm. the size and the density and everything else uh, uh, about the wine glass over here. That's symptomatic of the fact that the shape of the wine glass is a property of it. So according to the terminology I think that I think is useful, if you think that there are non-physical aspects to human nature that we need to posit to account for conscious experience, if you, if you think there are qualia or phenomenal properties, as people sometimes call them, the property of what it's like to experience a color or a pain, but you deny that there is any immaterial aspects or part of a human person that can exist by itself without their body, then you count as a property dualist. Whereas if you take the view that there is some part or aspect of human nature that we need to posit, solve the mind-body problem that can, that could in principle exist by itself without the body, then you're a, a substance dualist. And if you think there's only that immaterial thing uh, and nothing material, ultimately, then you're an idealist. That's, that's how I use these terms. That's so good. And, and so, so on, this <laughs> on this understanding, uh, a property would include like properties, qualities, and attributes. Like it's just a catch-all for, for yeah. all those things, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a, very, it's a really broad term as I use it. I think most philosophers do use property interchangeably with attribute, quality, and so on. You might think like there's two kinds of properties. There's qualities and quantities. Aristotle has this whole complex schema. I, I just use it for any, any feature of a thing that can't exist without the thing it belongs to. That's so, that's so helpful because it, it, I'll read different, uh, different sub-disciplines in philosophy and they're talking about secondary qualities. And I'm like, man, I just, I just spent all this time reading about properties. Can we just, you know, let's just call it this. And I just. <laughs> Yeah, but I, yeah. I understand some, someone who's done a lot of work on that would say, no, 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 we need the distinction. So I understand. Um, so, so Aristotle, you, you bring up Aristotle, Descartes and Locke and, and Locke kind of introduces, uh, substratum and yeah, 
and that that may be closer to what Aristotle meant by like prime matter or uh or a bare particular. It's like this thing without any properties. And yeah. Then I think you said in the book, I'm pretty sure this this was like your view that that um Descartes didn't go in for any kind of substratum or any kind of bare particular, but that he was more of a bundle theorist. And exactly right. Yeah. That that's that's crazy to me because um it seems like he needs something underneath there holding those all together. But I, I took it that you agreed with him over against Locke. Did, did, is that right? Or am I? Am I, I, do. I mean, it, yeah. Uh, so, well, two things have uh, really helped to confuse debates involving the idea of substance in um, modern philosophy. The first of these is the... Um, suggestion initially put forward, I think, by Leibniz that if a substance is something that can exist by itself, then it must be able to exist without its own properties. And that sounds incoherent. What, what, what would it mean for something to exist without any properties? What, what, what kind of something would it be? Therefore, this definition of substance makes no sense. And then there's a, a related, but I think distinct confusion arising out of Locke's suggestion that by the word substance, we mean something that stands under, he uses the Latin etymology, stands under the properties of a thing and kind of holds them all together. Now, um, since you asked about Locke, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. I, it, it is um, simply false that that's what the word substance had traditionally meant when Locke wrote that. Uh, it's um, just not true that when Aristotle or Descartes talk about substances, they mean these mysterious propertyless entities. Rather, they give examples. They mean things like human beings or horses or minds or bodies, things that have properties. Now, and, and so when, when we talk about substance dualism, we, we should be, at least if we are inclined, at least if we think that the um, terminology should be continuous with Descartes as the paradigm substance dualist, then, then we, we should uh, be wary of assuming that Locke is telling us what substance means in this context. A lot of people haven't, haven't done that. And they've assumed that a substance dualist has to be someone who thinks there's this mysterious propertyless thing that underlies the mind, mm. uh, rather than that there's just an immaterial thing that can exist separately. Now you said, it sounds crazy to you that Descartes is a kind of bundle theorist. I I'd say a couple of things about that. One, one important clarification is that People use the term bundle theory in uh, two slightly different ways. Sometimes when they talk about a bundle theorist, they mean someone who thinks that uh, any substance in the traditional sense, which means roughly an object that can exist separately, like a wine glass, but not like the size of a wine glass, any substance is a bundle of properties in the sense that those properties are more fundamental than it and could exist separately from it. It's kind of a swarm of properties. Uh, would you say now, that's Hume? Does, does, would Hume yeah. be represented by that? Okay. So Hume's idea that the mind is a bundle of uh, perceptions is, is rightly described as a bundle theory in that sense. Hume actually thinks those individual perceptions could all exist separately from one another. He's very explicit yeah. about this. And he's actually quite clear. He says, and therefore, in Descartes' sense of the term, they are substances. Well, he doesn't say Descartes, but in, in the sense that uh, uh, he definitely takes from Descartes, things that can exist by themselves, they're substances. Now, Descartes definitely isn't a bundle theorist. 
about substances in that sense. It wouldn't make any sense to suppose uh, he, he was. Descartes is a bundle theorist simply in the sense that he thinks once we've uh, analyzed the substance into its principal attribute, uh, that basic property of which all the other properties are modifications, so for mind, thought, for body's extension, and into all of its uh, particular modifications, the thoughts I'm having now, or the particular shape of the wine glass. Once we've done that, we've exhausted everything there is there. Now, uh, so some people think the principal attribute for Descartes serves in a kind of analogous role to prime matter for uh, Aristotelians who have prime matter or the substratum from Locke. And yeah, there might be something to be said for that. Um, but insofar as it's counted as a property, uh, there are any properties. Descartes puts this in, in one of his uh, letters. He says, uh, uh, the substance just is the sum of the attributes or something along those lines. Okay. Okay. So that makes more sense. I'm so glad that you helped me distinguish that from Hume because that, that is the direction I was going. So this is super helpful. And I understand now why, why Descartes would do that, especially with, with the role that thinking plays in this philosophy. Uh -huh. but I, I wonder about individuation, uh, your thinking versus my thinking. It seems, I used to think that substratum was nuts and hexades were nuts. And then JP Moreland kind of got me over on that side through one of his classes. And now I'm like, well, isn't, isn't my thinking like, like what individual, if thinking is the mm, property that is essential to my immaterial aspect and, and you're also thinking, how are we individuated if my thinking isn't like a, a hexade or a. You know, something completely, you know, different than yours. Yeah. This is a question in which I'm uh, extremely interested. I don't address it in the book at all, as far as I can recall. Uh, I, I think the arguments in the book kind of kind of go through without without trying to deal yeah. with this. Sure. Um, sure. But I'm really interested in it. And, and I, I, I came to a kind of um, maybe... Uh, crazy view on this question, or maybe like really, really sensible view, um, <laughs> according to which I, I'm inclined to say something like this, the, um, one mistake, it seems to me in much of the history of philosophy is to suppose that abstract, <laughs> abstract entities, uh, which is to say, uh, uh, entities that aren't instantiated either in space or in time in the uh, causal order of the world, like, like numbers according to many people, Platonists and so on. Uh, it's often supposed that abstract entities are all universal. They're things like uh, redness or justice um, or circularity. It, it seems to me actually that abstract entities ought to be regarded as including particulars. Um, so there is that abstract entity, which is... Uh, uh, the uh, possibly actualizable essence of Parker Dedicase. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, Ralph Stefan Weir, and likewise, uh, uh, David Hume, and so on. And I'm, I'm also inclined to say that um, the abstract concrete distinction should just be collapsed into the possible actual distinction. I think when we talk mm -hmm. about something being possible and actual, we really mean possibly concrete versus actually concrete. Um, I, one day I'm going to write this uh, really great book where I, I set out all of this. Um, so it's slightly to my annoyance, having having 
arrives at this view, I realized that um, the great, sadly deceased philosopher of religion, David Arthur, had a very similar view, and that actually the great metaphysician and epistemologist Timothy Williamson has a very similar view. His view that all things necessarily exist is, is essentially the same idea as I think I'm getting at. Um, so that's, that's some like kind of complicated, maybe not that interesting background. The, sh the short answer is, yeah. And, and I think these, you know, abstract essences that can be, uh, concretely actualized serve something like the role of scotuses, hyxerites. I, I think we are intuitive hyxerites. I think it's really hard to get away from some, something that looks a bit like hyxerites the, the fact that it, this very one does not seem to me to be analyzable in more, more fundamental terms, and it doesn't seem to be eliminable from a, a plausible conception of reality. Yeah, mm, that's good. Well, so uh, is, that, is that what we are? Like, because you can, I, I feel like I can take away, I don't know, you could, you know, some kind of metaphysical physician, uh, uh, doctor with a scalpel could, could, you know, remove this property and that property from me. But if they took away my hexaity from me, it's like, that's where it gets like contradiction in terms. I don't know that. So that I would say like, that's what I am, but that, what is that thing? If it has no properties, how is that me? You know, I, I, it's so yeah. tough to think. I mean, I'm inclined to say, I'm inclined to say that, um, what you are, uh, is, uh, of course, a concrete entity instantiated in time and uh, at least contingently in space as well. And it may be uh, that part of your hyxerity, your essence, is that you can only concretely exist if you also have some other properties. So it's, it's the one uh, that makes you you. We might, we might but, but we only arrive at the idea of it by abstracting away properties without which it could not really be instantiated. I'd be skeptical that one's hyxerity could be instantiated by itself. Uh, therefore, I guess I'd say one's hyxerity is a property and not a substance. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. I like that. I, I think of, maybe this, this won't uh, work for you, but like in The Sims, there's like this green thing that hovers over you. Well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that in my head, that's just what what came to mind. Death. Yeah, we all have a, a little diamond over our head. That's the hexady. It's like a property saying that we do exist uh, concretely. Perhaps this this all is super fascinating for me when it comes to questions of like um, um uh, existing in God's mind or uh, God having the idea of of you in mind prior to um. Uh -huh making it concrete or, you know, these ideas of Molinism stuff. So I just want to flag that for the audience that th this is uh this is really cool stuff for a lot of different philosophy of religion type stuff as well. <laughs> Man, I caught your cough. Now I'm, now I'm coughing here too. Uh, it's amazing that these videos can do that now. Yeah. It, they're, they're getting so advanced, so high tech. Um, I did want to talk again, this doesn't fit a whole ton. Yeah. It's, it's for me. And I really, something I've been thinking about a lot because I've been doing some work on artificial intelligence and you brought up this distinction between a uh, functional or phenomenal consciousness and uh -huh. function, functional consciousness. Yeah. And I think I side with you on your understanding of functional consciousness. Can you just, can you broach like a lot of us will know what yeah. phenomenal is, right? Is what it's like to be a bat. We have, we've talked about this a lot, but, but the functional one I think is really helpful. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, th this is a distinction that's very helpfully set out by David Chalmers in his classic 
uh, I think it's 1995 paper facing up to the problem of consciousness. Uh, by functional consciousness, we mean responding for something to respond to its environment uh, in a way that uh, takes account of the stimuli present around it. And uh, there are lots of specific ways in which human beings are functionally conscious. So, for example, if we can uh, uh, see that there's some delicious food across the room, we might go over and eat it. That's responding to our environment in a sensible way. We see there's a saber-toothed tiger coming to attack us. Some of us will run and others of us will, will try to strangle it or something. Um, this is all, you know, we, it's responding to your to stimuli in your environment. And very often in our neuroscience uh, and uh, adjacent disciplines, it's really valuable, useful, and interesting to try and put forward a theory of how these functionally conscious processes are accomplished. There's been some like really fascinating stuff on e even simple things like what well, things we might foolishly regard as simple, like vision. You know, you intuitively think that uh, your visual apparatus just just give you a window onto the world. No, in fact, it involves all of this kind of uh, quasi theoretical stuff, predictive processing, and so on. Uh, so that's a really interesting area for neuroscientists. However, insofar as we're interested in the mind-body problem, functional consciousness is not a serious issue. I think I say it in the book that like, uh, to be functionally conscious does not involve anything mental any more than the behavior of an automatic door. Um, mm. it, it, yeah, I love that. It's responding to the environment. And I think that therefore the term conscious here is a bit of a misnomer, uh, insofar as, uh, it's supposed to signify some kind of mental state. I'm inclined to say it gets applied because we're well aware in human beings, the functionally conscious processes are typically also phenomenally conscious, but really these are, these are just two different topics, both very interesting, but not to be confused with one another. There are of course, you know, materialists like Daniel Dennett, who, who wants to argue really there only is functional consciousness. Really the idea that there's this other kind is some kind of, uh, uh, illusion or persistent theoretical uh, error, but, but they themselves are aware that in saying that they are making a controversial and at face value counterintuitive, uh, claim. Yeah. Well, I, I thought that was so helpful because, uh, that, that brings us to just a, a, a distinction that you made between types of materialists, uh, a, a casual materialist, materialist uh, and an informed materialist. And I, I think of, uh, like a Roomba, you, you, you talked about on Mac doors, which is even better, but we 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 say a Roomba. We act like it is a. Uh, we act like it's a thing. You know, depending on your muriology, it may not even be a thing. But uh, we act like it's this thing that that is functionally conscious. And we kind of use that terminology. And a lot of us have let people use that terminology. And then they turn back around, like in the Dennett fashion, and go, "Oh, so you too, and and me too, and all of us." And it's like, well, no, this was a. We we let you use this comfort this uh, terminology in order to to say something interesting about. Uh, artifacts but then don't come back and make me into an artifact because obviously uh if you present all sorts of inform uh, all sorts of arguments that i'm not conscious i can't believe those I, i'm just not able to to follow you on that right so i thought that was really fascinating you the distinction between a ca uh, casual materialist and an informed materialist i thought was super helpful the casual ones are like hey look someone who does work on philosophy of mind and neuroscience and cognitive science and all that stuff 
they they know they they've got the information that that um can show us how to solve the the hard problem of consciousness or something and the informed ones you said take uh one of two stances one is uh they they deny consciousness exists or they explain uh that it's just physical so so the the informed ones explain tell you why there's not an answer to the hard problem and the uninformed yeah. they, they didn't they didn't explain it well they didn't just say it's just physical they say it's just physical but we have no idea how at least, oh, at right. least that's not how right, i describe right. informed, informed yeah but and and something that's important there is that they <clears throat> and i've had this happen to my show with my friends who are physicalists and i love you guys but they'll say like we haven't given it enough time like why why um one of them my my friend i won't say his name but he he was like well i think punting to substance dualism is is too quick we haven't been at this that long and it's like well i don't know if, if you trace this back to plato then it it has been kind of long so i, I thought that was a really helpful distinction that you made yeah i i mean i find it you know it, it's i i think it's sort of sociologically true i guess i found writing the book like i i'm more and more interested in like what where where all this sits in our wider intellectual culture mm -hmm. um that I, i'm very interested in the you know rigorous analytical arguments about specific details uh but those become vastly more interesting when you think about where it fits into wider intellectual culture and this is a a, a distinction i kind of noticed but you, you can't really write about that kind of stuff in philosophy right. journals so right. that opening chapter of a book's a really good opportunity to say well look, here's what i really think is going on um and yeah i've met many many people who take it for granted that there are some experts in neuroscience or philosophy who have worked out and understood why it is that certain arrangements of uh, physical particles and or forces and fields must be conscious. And a nice thing about having a thriving philosophical culture is that, you know, there are plenty of materialists who are well aware that's not true and who look ingenious strategies for explaining why it's not true. Uh, I think interestingly, like the we need to wait longer attitude, which you mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll crack it at some point. I don't see that so frequently among uh, professional academic philosophers who endorse materialism. I, 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 maybe this is just, um, you know, uh, uh, anecdotal data, but my impression is that, uh, the academic philosophers who, you know, spend, spend a good sort of 10 years trying to work out what, what's go is there for giving that satisfactory aha explanation. Now I see why it must be the case have generally accepted. We're not going to get that. Like if there were any scope for that, the, uh, Mary argument, the zombies argument mm -hmm. and so on, just, just would not get off the ground. The fact that they do shows the kind of explanation a materialist will give is going to have to be one that uh, accounts for the fact that we cannot see why any physical system should have to be conscious, at, at least unless we, we adopt the pan-psychist move yeah. of thinking that, that actually underlying these observable physical properties is a bunch of mental stuff. Um, some of the people who say we've just got to wait, maybe, maybe they're sort of not really distinguishing between that and materialism proper. In the book, of course, I argue that pan-psychist inevitably end up, um, if they're not materialists being, being dualists or idealists. And I think they have to be substance dualists or idealists. So there's not really a, a, a third way that. I, I love that part because I, I had thought that for so long and I thought maybe I just am not getting 
panpsychism because these panpsychists keep saying that there's a third way. And I'm like, well, I just don't see how you're not like a property dualist. And if you're a property dualist, then why not go, you know, full more? So then seeing you say that, I was like, okay, I'm not as crazy. Or maybe we're both just crazy together, but you were there first. So that's yeah. good. I really I mean, been trying, I've been trying for years to get Philip Goff to admit he has to be a substance. <laughs> I, I, like, I feel, I feel I, like I'm closer and closer. But. I love that. I asked him last time he was on the podcast about that. Cause I, I just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see him. I mean, maybe, maybe he's like, you know, head, head and shoulders above and uh, he's living in the year, uh, you know, 4,000, but I'm still trying to figure it out. I, I mean, he um, is, he is. I mean, in my opinion, he's, he's one, one of the, the great minds of our, our, our age. And it's a huge uh, honor to get to occasionally chat with him about this stuff, but he is completely wrong about that particular issue. That's good. I'm so glad. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I hope that he listens to this. I, I think he probably will. Um, okay. So I, I going, going back to D Descartes and the bundle theory view and, uh, taking away your thinking, I guess, I, I wonder, do you think that a weird criticism of Descartes is that like, I think therefore I am. So when you're not thinking you don't exist. Right. And it's like, kind of, you know, it's like the first year philosophy student is like, aha, I've busted you or I stink. Therefore I am. And it's like, well, no, not quite. You can't do that. But uh, now going back and thinking through it more deeply in the bundle view, I'm wondering, you know, <clears throat> I wonder yeah. if it's true, you know, can you have a non-conscious mind? Um, I know that there's a, there's, there's good ways to argue around this. Someone says, well, what about when you go into a dreamless sleep? And someone might say, well, maybe since your brain isn't activated, uh, you're not, you're, you are conscious, but you're not encoding that information in memories. So there's, there's different sophisticated ways to get around that. But I wonder, could you have a non-conscious uh, mind? Yeah, this is another of these like extremely interesting questions, which I, I haven't yet uh, worked on. Seriously, no, no, it's, 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 it's great to touch on. I mean, was, when I was working with Stephen Priest, he would always say, don't bother about, uh, don't bother about refuting the uh, dominant position, write to the new paradigm, write, fill in the detail, put forward a plausible picture. That, that's much more exciting. And I, I, I haven't quite done that yet, but the next book, maybe I'll try. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the questions that really has to be addressed. I, I am actually, you, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that I do not concretely exist if I am not undergoing uh, conscious experience. At least I, do, I, do, I don't want to rule out that idea. Yeah. I'm not sure that that entails that there are gaps in a person's experience when they're unconscious. This hmm. depends partly on what relationship we think obtains between uh, phenomenological time and uh, physical time. Uh, right at the end, of Philip's, we were talking about Philip Goff, right at the end of his book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, it's a really interesting, promising sort of section where he talks about how uh, phenomenal transparency, this principle he uses to generate his view, <clears throat> might, might entail that we have access to the fundamental nature of time and experience, and it would be useful for wider metaphysics. I think, well, that, that's going to be relevant here. I also, I once, I can't remember where it is, but I once read this essay by another um, great contemporary philosopher, Howard Robinson, where I think he argued for a view according to which you do not exist when you're not conscious. Uh, and, and then address this concern it, that there are these discontinuities in your experience, if that's so. Um, I'd add some caveats though. Like if it's the case that, uh, you don't exist when you're not conscious, it only means you don't exist concretely. You still exist in this, the, uh, 
sense of me and Williamson and David Erford think uh, uh, you are, uh, exist necessarily. And furthermore, from the perspective of other conscious persons, you might well still have interests, uh, commitments, and, and so on mm. that, that depend on your simultaneous conscious experience such that some of the conclusions we'd expect to follow from your not existing, like, oh, well, we don't have to care about the guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's not here now. Or, um, uh, well, uh, it's all over, you know, that's not going to follow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're like blowing my mind here. That's so, that's such cool stuff to think through. And I I wonder for the audience who's like, why did you even bring that up? I I just, I'm wondering about like the artificial intelligence conversation where, where people refer to them as having minds, but of course they don't have phenomenal consciousness yet. And it's like, well, okay. So you're committed to this idea that you can have a mind without phenomenal consciousness, but you know, the phenomenologists are probably tearing their hair out right now. And so just bringing that into a fuller conversation of saying why this, um, what may look like just pure raw speculation, and maybe it is still has practical import for, you know, public philosophy and for computer science conversations where people throw this stuff around just super willy nilly and, and trigger me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in, I mean, I think the uh, recent developments in AI have, have caught many uh, sort of uh, less uh, scientific thinkers off their guard because, yeah. you know, part, part of being a bit skeptical of uh, uh, contemporary scientific intellectual culture is to be a bit skeptical of some of the radical predictions that are made about the future of technology. And I think we should hand it to a uh, them like, uh, GPT-4 and stable diffusion and so on. These are really uh, amazing. And, you know, we, it's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be difficult to work out how to demarcate what we think are obviously conscious beings and what we think we, we have to, for the sake of, uh, 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 uh to, to avoid making mistakes, treat as though they might be conscious beings. Uh, now. Insofar as people are saying, well, these AIs are uh, conscious, but not phenomenally conscious, I think, well, the, the, the answer is they're saying they're functionally conscious. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, functional consciousness has no particularly important normative uh, or uh, metaphysical implications. The fact it's functionally conscious doesn't mean you have to give it rights, you have to treat it kindly or anything. I mean, I think we should treat chat GPT kindly just because we shouldn't habituate ourselves to being yeah. uh, unkind. Uh, to something that behaves a bit like a conscious uh, being, but but only for that reason. Yeah, uh, I do think that there's a real question about whether. See, although I'm inclined to uh, see the conscious mind as something fundamental and distinct from, and I'm inclined to say more fundamental than the physical world, which uh, I, I'm inclined to say is, you know, a, a model generated by. Uh, out of the contents of conscious experiences and not not actually a fundamental description of reality. Even so, I'm sympathetic to the idea that it may be that certain arrangements of matter correlate necessarily with or causally bring about the existence of conscious experience. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, I kind of think that uh, uh, if you get a sperm and an egg together, they'll develop in a certain way that will result in a conscious mind. And, you know, we're confident that there's a coronation there, we're not quite sure why it happens. Therefore, it doesn't seem to me, even if you're an idealist or a substance dualist, that you can um, 
wash your hands of the worry, well, what about when a computer programs get sufficiently sophisticated that they can uh, mimic the behavior of conscious beings? What good grounds do we have to say they're not conscious? Now, I don't think we'll have the same, the same uh, grounds to say they are conscious as other human beings because we know other human beings uh, uh, and, and other uh, sentient animals develop out of the same evolutionary tree, the same massive uh, biological history that we did. And that gives us extra reason to suppose it'd be pretty weird if I were the only conscious one, probably if I had the others are too. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think there's a, a really serious problem there. And I, I'm, I'm actually, I occasionally, occasionally it worries me. Uh, uh, I think I'm not sure, I'm not sure we're going to uh, really know what to do about it when we have uh, AIs that are more or less indistinguishable from conscious beings. I also think, well, one other thing that interests me here uh, is um, transhumanism, the idea that maybe we could upload our minds onto computers. And uh, I'm writing like, I got invited to a transhumanist conference once and wrote a paper on it. And then since then, I, I keep on finding myself having to write papers about transhumanism for various <laughs> issues and things. I'm writing like the fourth or fifth now. And um, I do think irrespective of whether artificial intelligence uh, can be phenomenally conscious, I do think we have very good reason to be skeptical of the idea that we could live indefinitely by uploading our minds onto computers. Um, there's a sort of complicated argument for that, but in short, I think uh, the reason for wanting to upload your mind presupposes that personal identity is this very fundamental, important thing that we should value. Uh, the kind of thing that seems to entail a soul and perhaps a high clarity as kind of a nucleus of that soul. Uh, but if that's the case, then there's really no reason to suppose that scanning and destroying your brain and implementing the same computational processes, if the brain is computational in a computer, is going to result in you waking up with a computer for a brain. Whereas, uh, well, what transhumanists often say is, well, well, look, we adopt the Parfitian view of personal, personal mm -hmm. identity. It's really just a matter of these patterns, these continuities of causation and resemblance. Well, if that's the case, then yeah, sure. Scan and destroy your brain, upload the computational processes on a computer. Uh, that if there's a person who wakes up with a computer for their brain, they are the most continuous person with you. And therefore we can call them you. We can count them as being the same person as you. But only because on that revisionary Parfitian view of personal identity, to say that something is the same person as some earlier individual is merely a manner of speaking that tracks certain continuities. And as Parfit himself points out, not something that you could rationally care about, not mm. something that could satisfy your desire to survive and go on living. Sorry, that was, that was kind of a, a mini lecture in response to your question. That was fantastic. You touched on so many things that, that I've been thinking about. I... I've seen, again, this is probably, you know, an empirical thing. It is, but um, maybe it's anecdotal. But uh, when I talk with the, the folks on the tech side of things, they'll often be um, very optimistic about mind uploads uh, because they want to continue living. And they, they think like, you know, death is, is bad and they have their own eschatology in a tech space. It's uh -huh. fascinating, actually. But then when pressed, they do go back to like Derek Parfitty and uh, uh, structuralist view or patternist view of mind. And you go, well, wait, that's not actually you. And they go, oh yeah, no, it's not actually me. 
and say, but, but your whole impetus here was that you wanted to continue living. And then when I press you on it, you're not actually living and actually yeah. you're not living now. It's just the pattern and you are a strange loop. And you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really fascinating yeah. and fun to, to have it's this kind of yeah. a bait and switch. I think when, when they're pitching the idea, saying. they say it's really you, but when they're justifying the technology, they say, nah, it's not really you. That's right. 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 Yeah. And so I like to be the, the right. fly there and, and, and poke at them. Um, just like I, you know, I invite them to poke at me as well. When it, when it comes to, uh, that, that conversation of, um, existing without mental property or without thinking the property of thinking, I guess, I, I yeah. wonder, I want to get back to, to your work in the book. Cause I've taken you, I've taken you down all these, uh, rabbit, rabbit trails and you've been so gracious to follow me there. But in the book, you, you give, um, a parody of reasoning, parody of reasoning argument. Uh, you know, if, if you go in for philosophical zombies, yeah. then you should go in for, uh, phenomenal, uh, souls. What, what's yeah. the terminology user? Phenomenal substances, I guess I'd was, say. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Oh, I haven't read it in ages. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, so. Um, if you go in for, for Phil zombies, then you're, you should be on the hook for ghosts or, you know, phenomenological yeah. material style, material yeah. style. Yeah. Um, and I, the ghost language at first I was like, oh no, don't do this. Oh, uh, then I saw it was from, uh, Phil <laughs> Goff. And like, oh, well, if, if Goff did it, then we can get away with it. So yeah, you can go in for, uh, immaterial souls. And then if immaterial souls and substance dualism, but I wonder yeah. about, I wonder, or yeah, right. Or idealism. Are are philosophical zombies conceivable on a Cartesian picture of uh, the substance mm. and and you know existing as a, a bundle of properties, including that most important one for your immaterial aspect of thinking? Well, uh, see, so the idea of a philosophical zombie is the idea of an exact physical duplicate of you, except that. It's all dark on the inside. It that has no conscious experience. Uh, so, uh, you know, a puppet is a loose approximation of a philosophical zombie, uh, and clever animatronics is a closer approximation. And, uh, I'm, I'm strongly inclined to the view that we can, uh, make sense of the idea of a, a precise philosophical zombie being where all the, um, physical particles and fields move about in exactly the same way as, uh, they do in the life of a conscious human being, except that this being isn't conscious. It just seems to be, uh, just as a puppet or, uh, some animatronics might. Now I, I would say, um, the, the idea, there is a complex, uh, a complication here. Though if like, uh, David Chalmers, who, who really did the most to popularize the idea or that appears uh, earlier than him, if like Chalmers, you're assuming the conscious experience, him, if, if there's a, an immaterial mind of any kind or immaterial, uh, phenomenal properties, uh, does not act causally on the body. So it doesn't make any difference to what a, a human being does. Then for a philosophical zombie to exist would not, to not require any change in the, uh, causal laws that govern the world. Mm. Whereas if like, uh, me or, or various other contemporary proponents of the soul idea, uh, Richard Swinburne or Joshua Farris or Benedict Gerker, I, I would guess, uh, Martin Anita Rumelin and all, all sorts of others. If you think actually know that the conscious mind, not only is it immaterial, but it acts causally on the body. Yeah. Well, then a world just like ours without your conscious mind 
would be one in which your, your body would probably suddenly slump down or it wouldn't uh, behave intelligently. So there's a sense in which a philosophical zombie is not what you would get by just removing consciousness. However, I think the idea remains useful because we can say, well, look, okay, to be sure, but we can imagine a world in which the uh, causal laws are uh, 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 adjusted so that the matter still does exactly what it does in this world without any conscious experience. Is that a coherent idea? And it mm -hmm. seems to me that that is clearly a coherent idea. There's nothing in the idea of these particles and fields uh, moving about in the way they do that entails logically or, or conceptually that there's anything like anything it's like to be the thing composed of them. Hmm. Okay. But okay. So, okay. I, I, yeah, I've I always struggle with this, and that's that's my problem because I'm so I'm so uh, I entered into philosophy through like the argument from reason type stuff, and I was so like gung ho about like the mental causation and how important it is and how you wouldn't have it without I, it and against. So so I was worried. Well, about by, by the argument from reason, uh, what what are you alluding to? Well, it's like a it's, family of arguments, right? But but C.S. Lewis is um, yes, one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe like a, a, a transcendental type argument. Um, um, I'm trying to think of the paper, but the transcendental refutation of determinism uh, type type stuff. It's it's a it's still uh, yeah. uh, Hasker's Hasker's paper. And, you know, it's still within the, the realm of the argument from reason. So I'm always nervous to give any ground on that because I think, well, well if, if I say that there's a world where it's possible that that a ma purely material being is responding to reasons while not having a material uh an immaterial component to them then am i just conceding the argument against the argument from reason does, does that make any sense yeah I, I i guess i see the worry although i'm pretty confident so so i actually I, i'm very sympathetic to both the argument from reason and maybe slightly lesser degree to the uh transcendental arguments uh for free will uh how, however i don't see them as incompatible with the zombie arguments it seems to me to, to accept the zombie argument is only to accept that a being could behave as though it were responding to reasons, okay. uh, as though it, 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 it fought itself free um, in a world where really there's just matter bouncing around, just as a, a puppet can do so in a puppet shape. Uh, whereas the crucial thing about the argument from reason is, is that we do actually, one premise is we really do think we're responding to reason and uh, we, we, we can't. Uh, rationally conclude that we're not. So any theory of the world uh, motivated by reasoning that entails we're not responsive to reasons must be uh, incoherent. So I think the two are compatible. Maybe there's room there for like, a, maybe someone needs to write an essay addressing that point head on and, and mm. you know, discussing is there a tension between these, these two lines of reasoning or not? That's great. Yeah, I love that. I, that sounds fantastic. So, um, so then getting on to, to, to your parody of reasoning argument, um, why think that, uh, if you go in for philosophical zombies, uh, you should all, you should likewise go in for, uh, you know, phenomenological disembodied yeah. substance. Yeah. Well, see, um, here is, here yeah. is huh, if in the book, there is like, you, there's, there's a lot of sort of, um, background work and a lot of, at least the, the start sort of big picture, here's how I see it all fitting together stuff. But if there's a, a hard round analytical point in the book, it's this, uh, which is that 
proponents of property dualism who are motivated by the zombie argument, who think, you know, we, we can coherently imagine a physical duplicate of a world with no consciousness, therefore such a world is possible, therefore consciousness is something extra. <laughs> they are, they standardly conclude there are non-physical properties but reject non-physical substances. They do not take the time typically to, to specify what exactly the property substance distinction consists in. Now, I, I take the view that once you do that, once you uh, investigate, well, what does this distinction consist in or what is the relevant distinction here? And you realize it is the distinction between things that can and can't exist by themselves. That is to say, <laughs> a, a modal distinction, uh, a substance is something that does not necessitate the existence of other things. Uh, then it becomes swiftly apparent that the line of reasoning put forward in favor of property dualism can simply be inverted to give us an argument in favor of substance dualism. Uh, the argument for property dualism says the physical fact don't a priori entail, they don't logically entail the existence of physical things, uh, of phenomenal, of conscious experience rather. Therefore, the physical facts don't necessitate the existence of consciousness. There could be a physical world like ours without consciousness. Well, if you invert that argument, you have an argument that says the phenomenal fact, the facts about our phenomenal experience do not logically entail the existence of anything physical. That's something that most property journalists explicitly accept. David Chalmers, Philip Goff, who I count as a panpsychist from uh, a property journalist and so on. Premise two, uh, if the uh, phenomenal facts don't logically clientele, the existence of anything physical, then they don't necessitate the existence of anything physical. Well, then it just follows there is at least one mental, one phenomenal entity whose existence does not require, does not necessitate the existence of anything physical. So there's at least one non-physical substance. And then you can adjust the argument a bit and say, well, what about the phenomenal facts about my own experience, excluding other people? Do they entail the existence of anything physical or the existence of any other minds? maybe leaving aside God. Um, and, and you get the conclusion that I'm a non-physical substance. And I think this argument's important uh, because unlike other arguments for a non-physical self or soul, uh, this one, at least I contend, only uses premises to which property jurists are themselves explicitly committed. Yeah. So it, it's not like they can say, Oh, yeah, sure, that's an interesting argument, but I'm not sure about it. As a matter of consistency, or as I put it in the book, by parity of reasoning, if they're going to accept the zombie argument of property dualism, they need to accept this, this phenomenal disembodiment argument for substance dualism. Hmm. It's, it's not very unlike Descartes' disembodiment argument or Swinburne's dis disembodiment argument, uh, but those arguments make use of the first person personal pronoun I which yeah. brings in a whole load of complex issues, which uh, uh, allows property journalists what I and Swinburne and Descartes think is a spurious way out, but nonetheless, uh, 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 at least a way out that allows them to seem to be consistent. Yeah, I, I like this. I like this, that, that it goes just to, to some immaterial uh, substance and then to the eye, uh, which, which I thought was really fantastic. I wonder... If not to jump off it too quick, but something else you, you bring up in the book about uh, liberal Platonism 
that these are folks, these are Platonists who strong, you know, realist Platonists, whatever Platonists who believe in uh, uninstantiated uh, forms, but you know, properties as well. Like there are free floating yeah. properties somewhere in Plato's heaven. Uh, I think I count myself as one of those, and I'm wondering if I can still appropriate your arguments even while thinking that there are, in fact, properties that are uh, uninstantiated. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think liberal Platonism is um, uh, true. So, so yeah. I, I hope I can appropriate my argument. <laughs> argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I say so just to explain this issue. I mentioned earlier one thing that that I think has kind of scared people off from seriously looking into uh, the metaphysics of properties and substances as a precursor to uh, clarifying our responses to the mind-body problem is that there's this big thing called the problem of the universals. Like, what, what, is the nature, what is the relationship between the universal property of redness and an individual red uh, pinner box, for example? And something strange happened in the 20th century. I think Quine, Willard Van Allman Quine is largely to blame, which is that people start taking the view that either you're allowed to say there are abstract universal properties, uh, there is redness itself, as Plato would say, in some kind of platonic heaven or in, in the same world as mathematical objects like numbers, uh, that are instantiated by objects by what I would call substances, like a wine glass instantiate the shape of the wine glass, that kind of thing. Uh, or you're allowed to say, actually, there are concrete particular property instances, like the particular shape of this very wine glass, which uh, I am experiencing now, which is having a causal impact on my uh, uh, sensory field. Whereas, in fact, for the whole history of philosophy, as far as I can tell, most people endorse both of those views. There are abstract universal uh, properties like redness, and there are concrete property instances that belong to individual concrete substances. So I think that's the view Plato held. I think it's the view that most of the uh, medieval philosophers held. And I think it's, it's the most plausible, plausible view, liberal Platonism. Yeah, that's great. Well, so, um, yeah, that's, that's so good. I, I wonder... You know, like David Armstrong and maybe Aristotle would say, like the there's no uninstantiated <laughs> forms. Of what Aristotle, I believe, would say, but but I think bringing that up to date to to properties as well. Like there's the whole critique of the, uh, the maybe the blue museum. You put everything blue inside a museum and you paint it blue and then you blow it up and it's like, is there no more? Is there no more blue? Yeah, it seems like no. it's still blue. Um, so that that's that is really helpful. I'm glad that that you don't need to be that type of property theorist in order to motivate uh, this argument. I wonder about the definition of substance there. Uh, I've studied under guys like Paul Gould, who have like a, a really specific definition of, of substance with, you know, properties and parts and, and powers. And um, then you look at folks like Swinburne who are like, well, substance is just a thing. And then you get Descartes and, and Descartes is like something, it's this independence uh, definition or, or thesis. Um, you, you cash that out in a metaphysical and in a, a causal, uh, interpretation of the independence, uh, definition. Do you have that on top of your mind? I know it's kind of like a, uh, I know it's, it could be really in depth. Can you help us with that? Like, how should we think yeah. about independence and substance? Yeah. 
And so, um, I, I mean, I had a, 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 an academic article that I think is like as readable as these things get, um, <laughs> in what review of metaphysics called, uh, bring back substances, exclamation mark, where I, I go into this in, in greater detail than in the book. Um, I mean, it, it essentially, yeah, that the, the term has been used in a multiple different ways increasingly in recent philosophy. And that was not always the case. I think that for the first sort of um, 2,000-ish years of Western philosophy, maybe like uh, 2,200 years, basically people accepted Aristotle's definition in the categories where he said there's a substance is um, uh, uh, something in which properties belong or uh, to which predicates are applied that does not belong to anything else in the same way and that is not said of other things in the same way. Uh, that, that's slightly ambiguous, but it's a pretty helpful definition. Uh, then, then things uh, change when Descartes uh, comes out with his independence definition, which in my opinion just very slightly clarifies Aristotle's definition. So Aristotle says quite clearly that our uh, properties or attributes, they can't exist by themselves. They have to exist in a substance. He doesn't explicitly say a substance can exist by itself. That may be taken as implied. Many people think it is implied, but he doesn't explicitly say it. And Descartes adds this one thing. He says, yeah, a substance can exist by itself. And Descartes' ideas are taken up by uh, uh, Antoine Arnaud and uh, uh, Pierre Nicole in The Port Royal Log Logic, which unfortunately people don't really read today. I recommend it. I think it's a great book, uh, despite all the Jansenism. And uh, <laughs> I was going to say, that's the only reason I knew about it. I wrote a paper on Pascal being a Jansenist. And I, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pascal was one of these guys too. Uh, in that book, they popularized Cartesianism and it, this new conception of uh, uh, the basics of philosophy um, becomes dominant, including Descartes' conception of substance. But before the Port Royal logic, Aristotle's categories was the first book everyone engaging in higher education in the whole post-Raymond world, including Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, it was the first text they read for at least like 1300, maybe as much as sort of 1700 years. And then after uh, the Paul Royal logic, that sort of took the place of Aristotle's categories and, and the rest of the organon. Uh, now, so I think there's a, a lot of pre precedent for the idea that, uh, that there's a pretty standard meaning to be given to the term substance in philosophy, which just means something that can exist by itself. How, and and I, I, I want to revive that conception of substance. I think it's uh, been wrongly dismissed, even by uh, Richard Swinburne, on this, uh, for this idea that uh, something that could exist by itself would have to be able to exist without its properties, and that makes no sense. Well, my reply to that is, that's not what the phrase by itself means. When I say that the wine glass is on the table by itself, I don't mean it's there without any of its properties. I mean, uh, it's including its properties is there, but there's nothing further. Uh, we, we have this intuitive notion of what's included in anything and what's not included in it when something by itself, uh, it, it's there with the things included in it. Sorry, do you want to share? Well, I wonder about like the essential, do you, do you need to make a distinction between essential and non-essential properties in order to have this by itselfness? Well, I think in the ordinary sense of the term, if I say the wine glass is by itself on the table, it, it's no refutation of my claim that it has some accidental properties. 
Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, at, at the moment, the wine glass has the deplorable accidental property of being largely empty, but it's, it's not <laughs> it's I, well, maybe you'd say the wine isn't part of the wine glass, but you get what I mean. I don't, that's I don't the think Kool-Aid that. Man. Yeah. The Kool-Aid is the Kool-Aid man, the Kool-Aid plus the shaper. Yeah. That's great. No, 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 no that's a really deep question. Yeah. We can't, yeah. we can't resolve that one tonight. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's so I'm, but I'm having said all that in favor of this traditional definition of sus, I would add, um, it seems to me in the context of a mind body problem, that's the real, well, that's probably the really important definition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's just, uh, 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 it, it's perfectly consistent with that, but in other contexts, we might want to develop other conceptions of substance, which are in some way derivative from or related to this traditional conception and are useful in other areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I do think it's, it's right when Swinburne says it just means the thing. Well, I think he's incorrect to say that the independence definition that I defend um, uh, is incoherent. But I think he's right that that definition probably does enter philosophy as an attempt to capture our more inchoate, intuitive no- notion of a thing as opposed to a property of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's totally legitimate to um, look for other ways to cash out that intuitive distinction and to claim what one is doing is uh, clarifying the concept of substance. How Howard Robinson and I are meant to be um, writing a new version of a Stanford Encyclopedia article on substance, which uh, we, we, we're meant to submit the new draft about three weeks ago. Once that's out, this will all be completely. Okay, that's great. I look forward to that. Um, so, so the reason that I, I thought about liberal Platonism being um, uh, incompatible with the arguments is because this idea that properties cannot exist by themselves. But maybe I'm maybe I'm confused. Maybe I'm thinking maybe it's property instances or properly property exemplifications to include both. Yeah, okay, to include both the Aristotelian and the Platonist. I'll say exemplification instances. Uh, so it's those that can't exist by themselves. That's the that, idea. Yeah, that's that's exactly the view. So, I mean, this is one of these uh, irritating details one has to go into and try, try to say what one thinks about these things. And um, yeah, I think and the property distinction as a distinct between things that can can't exist by themselves works very well when thinking about the concrete world, which, which is the term philosophy used to mean the uh, world of things instantiated in space or time and that uh, act causally on one another. I think, where, and, and I think these definitions should be just thought of as uh, ranging over things in that world. If it can exist by itself in the sense of without other concrete things, then it's a substance. If not, it's a property, a concrete property. Uh, but, but if, like me, you also think there's an abstract world involving numbers and universals and hyxeatist uh, essences of things and so on, well, I would think all of those on an ordinary Platonist view exist necessarily. So none of those can exist without any of the others and nothing concrete can exist without any of them. Mm. So, uh, the, the can exist by itself or not distinction, uh, ceases to be useful when we're talking about the abstract tonic heaven, if, if there is not. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And I, I also go in for theistic conceptual realism. So I actually, 
I guess I don't think those things exist on their own anyways, because I, I want to ground those in, in the mind of God. So, so that's yeah. fun. This is, this yeah. is so good. I love this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view too, too, in fact, it's not, it's not something I've investigated in detail and I've, I've occasionally tried to work out like, when does that view enter the history of philosophy? And I never managed. So, so if you, if you can give me some references, I know like by the end of middle ages, it's sort of presupposed by a lot of people. Yeah. In uh, late antiquity, you don't see much sign of it. Maybe in, you know, maybe in the Neoplatonist, but I've never found anything like a really explicit locus classicus where this view enters. Yeah. Well, so, so Greg Welty has done his dissertation uh, on this under Swinburne. I'm not, I'm not sure. are, you, are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. No. Yeah. Well, I, I can send, yeah, I'll, I'll send, I'll send some stuff uh, when we're off there. It's you. Yeah, yeah, I'd really yeah. appreciate it. And he, he, he and James Anderson have written a piece on it, and they, they, they claim it's, it's uh, souped up uh, Augustine. Some people say, uh, I heard someone, uh, one, one commenter said it was uh, warmed over Barclay or something, and they go, no, 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 souped up Augustine. So, yeah, we could talk more about that. Um, so, so this is, this book is awesome. We, we just kind of scratched the surface, and there's so many really clear and concise good arguments here. Um, I I love it, man. Thanks so much for sending it to me. And just from talking with you, we have so many like similar interests and you're just further down the line. So I think you can really help me with a lot of stuff. So I would love to have you back on to talk. We could talk all sorts of stuff, but this has been one of the most stimulating conversations I've had in a long time. So thank you so much for, for coming on to share your work. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back and uh, to talk more. Yeah. And to try and make yeah, people be- buy my that's right. That's right. Well, uh, Ralph, where, where can people find uh, some of your work if, if they're more interested in, in other ideas you have? Similar. There, there's um, uh, a couple of videos on YouTube. Uh, there's one called In Defense of the Soul, which was a talk I gave a little under a year ago at uh, PUC House in Oxford, which gives kind of, kind of the same topic as the first chapter of the book. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's my effort of being really accessible and uh, uh, getting across why this uh, stuff is important. So if people are interested, I, I uh, hope they might find that uh, worth viewing. Uh, there's one or two other videos. There's one about why there's something rather than nothing on, I think it, that's actually on Facebook, on the Lincoln Philosophy Salon uh, page. Um, and then, I mean, uh, uh, if you go to my faculty page at Lincoln, you'll find a bunch of uh, uh, academic articles which, I mean, I try when I write to make it clear and enjoyable to read because I hate yeah. reading boring stuff. And so it's like, I would kind of hope that uh, if you're interested in this stuff and you don't understand um, or, or enjoy what I'm writing, then it's really my fault and I failed in what I'm trying to do. Uh, so, so I guess I'd direct people towards that. In the future, I, I really want to try and write some more stuff, more public-facing stuff. Um, yeah. So I have a few things in the works, sort of shorter pieces, uh, op-ed kind of things. And, um, you know, once I tell, you, you know, uh, the New York times that I featured on Parker's Ponce's, then they're definitely going to say, well, okay, we've got to publish you. That's great. Uh, That's, so awesome. becoming... <laughs> That's so great. All right. Well, uh, so folks, again, it's a, uh, it's a Routledge studies in contemporary philosophy book, the mind body problem and metaphysics, an argument from consciousness to mental oh. substance by Ralph Stefan Weir. Uh, I got it because I'm awesome and I have a podcast, I think it's probably going to be kind of expensive. So if that's the case, ask your libraries to order it and then you can get, uh, you know, you can get it for free. So go. And there will be a paperback soon too. 
Can't wait. I love that. Yeah. I, they do that. I know they always do that. And it's so tough because and the author's like, you guys don't, it's not like you guys are making a bunch of money. It's like they're selling it to the libraries first. So that's wild. All right, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>